In order to truly become part of the global business environment, your business needs to constantly change and adapt to a variety of new constants. Welcome to Leadership Beyond Borders with Kimberly J. Lewis. We will help you navigate these changes on today's program and help you think beyond the boundaries. The opportunities are limitless if you are prepared. Now, here is your host, Kimberly J. Lewis. Hello and welcome to Leadership Beyond Borders. I'm Kimberly Lewis, host. And this series is in cooperation with Cinda Virtual, which brings you thought leaders and business stories from all over the world. You can learn more about Cinda on www.cinda.org. But we don't only bring you thought leaders from all over the world, but we also have listeners from all over the world. So good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you may be listening from today. And if you're new to the show, let me tell you what this show is about. Leadership Beyond Board is about the impact globalization, digital transition, the connected world is having on our organizations and what that impact is doing to the kind of leadership we need to drive long-term success in today's economy. In this series, we've talked about everything from business issues such as artificial intelligence, digital transitions, and data protection regulations to leadership issues such as gender balance and business values and ethics that may impact your organization or your individual career. So please listen to us live. We are live every Tuesday, 3 p.m. specific time. And if you miss us live, don't worry about it because we are on every major podcast platform from Apple to Google to Stitcher to Spotify. Just put Leadership Beyond Borders in the search bar and you will find us. And I also connect connect with me and I invite you to connect with me and send your insights to leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com and tell us what you want to hear on this podcast. So if you're in a leadership position or aspire to be in one, regardless if your position is local or international, join us every week and we'll make sure you take back something for either yourself or your business. Now on to today, um, we're invited back a regular guest with us um, because it's in, we're pretty much at the anniversary today. Um, It's one year, one month since the war in the Ukraine has started. And our regular guest who's been with us to talk about this subject and the leadership lessons we can learn from this war has been with us a few times. And I'd like to welcome back Dr. Jeffrey D. McCausland. And Jeffrey is a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College. And Jeff is the founder and CEO of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy, LLC. Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy has worked with thousands of individuals from organizations nationwide to develop a next generation of leaders. Their mission is to develop confident and effective leaders whose teams have the greatest impact on their community and the world. Since 2000, both domestically and internationally, Dr. McCausland has conducted numerous executive leadership development workshops and consulted for leaders in public education, U.S. government institutions, nonprofit organizations, and corporations. He is a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, the U.S. Army Airbound and Ranger Schools, and the Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. He holds a master's degree in PhD from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. And he is also an author. He has written and co-authored a book called Battle Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for the 21st Centuries. And we did talk to Jeffrey about that book uh, about two years ago. If you go to Leadership Beyond Borders, you can find that interview that talks about leadership lessons that you can learn from Gettysburg. But Jeff, um, welcome back. Kimberly, it's great to be with you. Yeah, you know, I mean, we've talked about, I'd say, we talked about six months ago, seven months ago, um, when the the uh, you, the war in the Ukraine was at its half point, and um, we're back now, and I'd love to get your insights about this, and, uh, you know, where is the war right now? What are we seeing right now? Well, see the war right now, Kimberly, I would describe it in a stalemate or perhaps a strategic pause. On the ground, really, the front, if you want to call it that, has not changed greatly for the last four or five months. In the fall, the Ukrainians executed a counteroffensive, recovered about 20 percent of the territory they lost, particularly in the in the Donbass region, the provinces of Luhansk and Donetsk, and also reasserted control over Kherson, the capital of Zaporizhia province, which was the only provincial capital the Russians had, in fact, 
uh, taken. Uh, since then, the line, as I said, has kind of solidified as the winter progressed. And now we have intense fighting going on around the city of Bakhmut, a city that prior to the war was about 70,000 people. Now about 4,000 remain. And the Russians have been assaulting that particular city literally for the last six or seven months. It, it doesn't, to my mind, have great military operational strategic import, but it's more become a symbol for the Russians to try to achieve something they can call success, as they've had a steady string of failures since this particular war has gone on. And what we see them doing is literally uh, doing what we would call human wave assaults uh, of soldiers and members of the so-called Wagner group, a group of mercenaries, against Ukrainian positions in an effort to break through and taking, as a consequence, uh, massive casualties. Many of those units for the Wagner uh, group, all, by the way, are recruited out of prisons. And the estimates now are mm -hmm. that the Russians, since the war began, have taken over 120,000 casualties, probably about 50,000 of those actually killed since the war began. On top of that, of course, the Russians continue to bombard Ukraine with missile and drone attacks focused on Ukrainian cities. Uh, and this is focused, it seems, to do two things. One, to try to break literally the willpower of the Ukrainian people. And we've seen what I think are indiscriminate uh, or even uh, conscious efforts to strike populated areas. Uh, estimates by the UN High Commission on Refugees would say nine to 10,000 Ukrainian civilians have been killed since this war began. I think that number is probably dramatically lower than it actually mm -hmm. is. Uh, but that really, I think, has largely failed. The Ukrainian air defense has stiffened over time and received assistance from the West. And rather than breaking the willpower of the Ukrainian people, it seems to me that the Ukrainian people have been enormously resilient as this particular war goes on. Mm -hmm. I, I, um, Jeff, I think that's a great, you know, what's going on today. And I want to come back to that, but I'd like to go back to the beginning for a minute, okay? Um, you know, this this invasion, and, and I go back one year and one, one month, um, we're all sitting at home and, and we were surprised. You know, maybe we thought something might happen, but, but it, most of us were quite surprised. Um, why were we surprised? How, how could that have been possible? Well, I think what happened, Kimberly, was, you know, the 9-11 report, for example, which is exhaustive. But if you read the executive summary, there's something that always stood out to me that leaders need to think about. And that is uh, they described the 9-11 attack as a failure of imagination. We just couldn't imagine by September 11th, 2001, that a group of people would learn how to fly an airliner, manage to make their way aboard, take over control and then fly that as a suicide mission uh, into a huge building like the World Trade Center. We just never imagined it, therefore we didn't prepare for it. I think that since the end of the Cold War, uh, many in Europe in particular, and to a lesser degree I think here in the United States, uh, have just basically imagined that conventional war did not apply anymore, that, that Europe had mm -hmm. managed to go beyond, beyond that. They had been through the horrors of, of World War One, and then repeated that one more time in World War Two. Uh, which had really affected the psyche in many ways of the European population. And then this long, drawn out, drawn out struggle called the Cold War, which we remember with fences and walls in Berlin and the like. And once that came to a close with the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was this collective belief that that just doesn't happen here anymore. That, 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 that no longer applies. We, we have gone beyond that in terms of how we developed our culture and our societies. And so it was really, if, if you will, I, I think that that failure of imagination uh, that occurred, despite the fact that if you look back, you, you realize that in 2004, Mr. Putin gives a speech in which he says the most terrible thing that happened in the 20th, 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union. Despite the fact that the Russians lost 30 million people or more in World War II, for Putin, the worst thing that happened was the collapse of the Soviet Union. And then in 2008, of course, Russia invades and occupied two provinces of, in Georgia. Abkhazia mm -hmm. and South Ossetia. And then in 2014, of course, we see uh, Mr. Putin invading Ukraine for the first time and basically seizing Crimea and fomenting a rebellion which has been going, going on ever since then, even up to this invasion in 2022 in Luhansk and Donetsk. 2016, uh, we see Mr. Putin interfering in Brexit and interfering in U.S. elections. And in 2018, of course, we had the Novichok killings in, in uh, the United Kingdom, where Russian agents using Novichok killed an ex-KGB agent 
and I believe his daughter, uh, which sort of bespeaks what happened to Mr. Navalny later on. And then in 2022, the invasion of the actual invasion of the Ukraine. My point is simply that Mr. Putin had done all these things and basically gotten away with them because this assumption continued that not only major war on, a, on the ground, like we're seeing now, was out of date, that that he would be individually appeased by these different actions. And obviously, we've proven that to be folly. Mm-hmm. And and so, Jeff, I mean, we have these instances, 2004, 2008, 2014, 2016, 18. Um, I mean, isn't it? What does this say about strategic thinking or leadership? Because isn't that clear indications that something was going to happen when he kept doing this? He kept kind of pushing the envelope a little bit further and further. Um, and we still kind of found ourselves in this failure of imagination. Yeah, I mean, it's also clearly a failure of assumptions and thinking through, you know, what are the strategic assumptions which underline our effort? And one of our strategic assumptions was, in fact, that major conventional war would not occur, that, in fact, mm-hmm. we could negotiate a settlement with the, with, the, with the Russians and many in Europe, particularly in Central Europe, Germany being a case, uh, really believe that closer economic and cultural ties, the development of close relationships would would allow for diplomatic solutions to be to be discovered. So, in fact, when you talk about the Nord Stream pipelines and greater uh, exporting mm-hmm. of oil and natural gas from Russia to Central Europe, the whole idea was those bonds of eco- economics would override hostilities and override future war. In essence, one could say that assumption for many Europeans had been proven by the establishment of the European Union. I mean, the European Union in many ways was established to prevent further conflict in Europe, which had bedeviled Europe for centuries, particularly between France and Germany. So if we can bring them together and tie their economies together, then over time, that will prevent future war. And that was the attempt, I think, that was made strategically by Ms. Merkel and others. And unfortunately, we found those particular assumptions crashed along the way as we ignored these interim events, which should have been alarm bells, that Mr. Putin had a different view of the world and what he thought Russia should be doing. On the other side mm-hmm. of the coin, of course, in terms of assumptions, we've got to think about Mr. Putin and his assumptions. And I think Vladimir Putin made two very, very critically bad assumptions. His first assumption was that, of course, this war wouldn't last very long. The Ukrainians wouldn't fight. They hadn't fought much in 2014. And in a matter of a couple of days, his troops would be in Kiev. They would take down the Zelensky government. They'd probably put in a puppet or occupy a large portion of the country. Uh, and that, that would be the end of it. And clearly... We have seen uh, that didn't that did not occur. Uh, Russian officers, in fact, have been told to pack their dress uniforms because they would need their dress uniforms when they got to Kiev for the Victory Day parade and the Victory Day celebration. I hope they're still, if they're living, hope they're still carrying those particular uniforms around with them. And then the second <laughs> assumption Mr. Putin made was that NATO would not be able to get its act together. NATO would not be able to get its act together. It hadn't got its act together when he invaded in 2014, hadn't got his act together over Georgia. And as a consequence, that would not, in fact, occur. And in the fall of 22, uh, 2022, um, or 2021, I should say, uh, he had witnessed this enormous disaster, which was uh, Afghanistan, which was really a U.S. and NATO disaster. And so from that, he took the assumption NATO couldn't get it together. And that has proven to be untrue. And in fact, NATO is stronger today as we see the possible accession of both Sweden and Finland uh, to the NATO alliance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, we're going to take a short break, Jeff. When we come back, I want to talk about Putin, okay, who's central to this all, and and, and talk about his, his, you know, expand on these assumptions and, and also, you know, his own self view of leadership in this whole role. So we're going to take a we're going to take a short break. And for our listeners, our guest today is Dr. Jeffrey McCausland. He's a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College. And Dr. McCausland is the founder and CEO of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy, LLC. And Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy, LLC, has worked with thousands of individuals from organizations across the country to develop next generation of leaders. The mission is to develop confident and effective leaders. And Dr. McCausland is a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, the U.S. Army. 
Army Airborne and Ranger Schools at, and the Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And he owns a master's and a PhD from the Fletcher School of Law. Now, if you'd like to learn more about Diamond Six Leadership, you can go to Diamond Six, and that's spelled out S-I-X, leadership.com. And if you'd like to find them on Facebook, it's under Diamond Six with the number leadership. And on Twitter, under D6 Leadership. And on Instagram, under D6 Leadership. And that's with the number six. And if you'd like to reach out to Jeffrey, you can reach out to him on LinkedIn under Jeffrey McCausland. And he is also on Twitter under MCCAUS. LJ. So please reach out to him. And this broadcast is also brought to you by Cinda. And Cinda is one of Europe's fastest growing nonprofit digital marketing and local search associations. Cinda holds virtual trainings, conferences, does market research, and legislative white papers focused on digital. So please go to www.cinda.org for more. And their next conference will be coming up. They also have conferences which will be held in Berlin, Germany, uh, May 22nd to 25th. And you can also find on their website a new learning platform for startups, product managers, and SMBs that help companies succeed. So please go to www.cinda.org. And with that, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Today we live in a truly global environment. Business can more easily be conducted now in almost any part of the world. How do you, as a business owner or professional, navigate the ever-changing business landscape? Tune in to Leadership Beyond Borders with host Kimberly J. Lewis. With a worldwide resource of guests, you'll find out what opportunities and challenges surround diverse and virtual organizations. Listen live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insights from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, and get hired into the career you want and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. A little birdie told me Voice America is on Twitter. Follow us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to Leadership Beyond Borders. Do you have a question or comment about our show? Please send an email to leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Again, that's leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Now back to this week's program. Welcome back to Leadership Beyond Borders. I'm Kimberly Lewis, your host. Today, we're talking about the war in Ukraine. It's one year and one month uh, since this tragedy began. And we are talking with an expert, uh, Dr. Jeffrey McCausland. And he is the founder and CEO of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy. Uh, Dr. McCausland is a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point and the U.S. Army Airborne and Ranger Schools and the Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And he holds both master's and Ph.D. from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts. So, um, Jeff, you know, he, let's let's talk about Putin. You're talking about his assumptions, okay? He made a couple of assumption mistakes um, that it wasn't going to take long. Pack your uniforms because we're going to have a celebration in Kiev, okay? Um, and NATO was not that strong. But, but you know, this this whole conflict is central to him himself, okay? Um, you know, what what have we learned from this about him and what you know him as a leader and what can leaders can take away what's worked what wasn't worked um and maybe a little bit of you know what was he thinking when he did this yeah i think what we need to understand about vladimir putin is that he really over time has created a cult of personality you know it's interesting he was brought in as president of the ukraine to replace boris yeltsin who was in uh, having an ailing health 
And many of the people around him, oligarchs and others, I thought think they they could control it. Oddly enough, if you study the rise of Adolf Hitler, you would learn that many in Germany thought this was a guy we could control and found out that was not going to be the case. And I think there's clear parallels between the rise of Hitler and the rise of Putin. And, and over time, he has really created what we would call a cult of personality. And over the years, if you think back before this war, we remember these photos and videos of him out, you know, in the Siberia riding a pony with his bare chest mm. or him diving into the ocean and, and single-handedly finding a, a rare ancient Greek jar that, of course, nobody else could have found or seeing him <laughs> riding his motorcycle with British or with the British, with uh, Russian motorcycle gangs. And this was all about creating a cult of personality uh, about Putin, who is, in my mind, just, you know, an average KGB guy in the twilight of an average career when all this particularly began. And over time, also then, he has begun to th- describe himself in, in those terms. He has frequently described himself as, you know, Peter the Great. I mean, he has really talked about, you know, Peter the Great did this and Peter the Great did that. And, and this is what we need to think about. And in so doing, describing the, his view of the world uh, is surrounding a concept called Ruski Mir. Ruski Mir. And what Ruski Mir means is uh, the Russian world. And early on, about the time he made that speech about the end of the Soviet Union was a catastrophe, um, a major catastrophe of the 20th century, he started talking about wherever there are wherever there are Russians, there is Russia. And so if you break out a map and you start looking at where there are Russians, well, a lot of Russians in Belarus, there are a lot of Russians in Ukraine, there are a lot of Russians in Kazakhstan, there are a lot of Russians in Estonia and in Latvia. And so basically suggestion that where there are Russians, that's really Russian territory. And also talking about, you know, reestablishing the great things that Peter the Great and Catherine the Great has done. And many of the listeners may have seen video of Putin talking to his, who his underlings in this enormous hall. And he's sitting at a table and they're all sitting at, uh, on chairs like, like schoolboys and girls. In that hall, there are statues of Peter the Great, uh, Catherine the Great, the Tsar Nicholas, who uh, put down the revolutions in the early part of the 19th century. And many people have pointed out that there's space there for one more statue. And we can all imagine what statue that should be. But over time as well, though, he has become more and more, I think, isolated. This was exacerbated by the pandemic, where he was enormously isolated. And trying to get in to see him was described as an unbelievable task. And he also had this huge palace built for him on the Black Sea. Lawrence Friedman, the great political scientist and historian in Great Britain, has recently written a book about about dictators like Putin. And he said one of the traps they fall into, and I think Putin has fallen into that trap, is they become more and more isolated. Who can tell the boss what he really needs to know, but is really going to be kind of inconvenient and not what he wants to hear? And that's a lesson for all leaders. If you become that isolated, that, you know, truth can't get to you, then you're going to fall victim to folly. And that, I think, unfortunately, has become uh, one of the things that's happened to Putin is if there's only a handful of people, maybe Petrushev, his national security advisor, maybe Medvedev, maybe Shoigu, perhaps, but very few people that can probably tell him the things he needs to know, which are going to be hard things to say. And then the other thing I'd say about Putin, of course, is everything everything is fair play. Uh, you examine what's happened to oligarchs over the last year, about 12 to 14 oligarchs have died very suddenly. One of them fell out of a, about an eight-story hospital window somehow. Uh, one, uh, all of them were described as suicides. My favorite was the guy who committed suicide by shooting himself seven times, which is a pretty <laughs> serious attempt at suicide. Yeah. But in reality, we know what happened, and these people had made comments that were less than supportive of Putin or less than supportive of the war. And as a consequence, that's what occurs. But I firmly believe that one of the essential characteristics of good leadership remains, you know, an ethical base. And Mr. Putin doesn't seem to have one. Now, to wrap that up real quick, though, I think it's very interesting to contrast Putin and Zelensky. The the contrast could not be more severe. Zelensky was written off by Putin as a clown. He had been a comedian. But, But Zelensky has shown himself to be an enormous wartime leader, inspiring the uh, Ukrainian people by his actions and by his words. At the very beginning, as it looked like Kiev might fall, don't forget the NATO allies urged Mr. Zelensky to leave Kiev. And in words that will probably ring down through history, Zelensky's reply was, I don't need a ride, I just need more ammunition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think the contrast as well between that cult of personality 
and this guy who seems to be very closely linked to his military and his people uh, couldn't be could couldn't be more stark. Mm-hmm. And and when you talk about Zelensky, we talk about I um, you know how he really integrates with his people and how he 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 observes and and discuss that. And you talk about Putin as being isolated. So. Um, when leaders look at that, uh, you know, we're kind of looking at what happens. We're in a stalemate now. Um, how do you think Zelensky is going to go forward with this? I mean, it, it, what he's doing is working. What more can he do now? What he can do now is he's got to do a number of things. One is he's got to continue to inspire his population because, mm-hmm. as I said at the onset, this is going to be a long war. And, and over time, war weariness will set in. While the Russians may have suffered 120,000 casualties, <clears throat> Ukrainians have probably suffered 75 to 80,000 casualties. So war weariness sets in. I've talked to Ukrainian friends, you have as well, and we know every family in the Ukraine has either is either hosting relatives who've moved in because they've fled the eastern part of the country. They have their sons and perhaps daughters at the front. One friend of mine has already his wife has lost a nephew. He has had a nephew who's now a prisoner of war. So every family is affected. So he's got to continue to inspire that. The second thing he's got to do is be the face of Ukraine and, and provide the narrative. And he's done that in a stunning fashion using technology. He's spoken to about every parliament I can think of on the planet. He has spoken a couple of times to the UN. He has been to Washington, D.C. and spoke before the House and Senate and hosted, I don't know how many world leaders in Ukraine, in an effort to, of course, uh, draw in support from the West, which so far has been successful. And then last but not least, he's got to take care of the myriad of activities of being a leader of a country mm-hmm. to coordinate not only the military activities, but also the humanitarian activities, the, the civil activities, and the and the, and the economy of Ukraine to keep that afloat as this war continues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and as he does this, you know, Putin is more isolated. And I guess one of the questions everybody asks, okay, you know, if you go to a cocktail party or having a coffee, you know, wh- why do not, why don't the Russian people stand up to Putin? Okay. Um, you know, of course you have these people who shot themselves seven times or fell out of windows um, and the close corner, but the, you know, the people on the street, uh, don't seem they don't support him, but they don't not support him. If you know what I mean, I would say a number of reasons. One is historically and culturally, the Russian population uh, has always been one that found it attractive to, to have the the strong leader. And Russians this day talk about the power of the strong leader, whether it was the Czar, whether it was Stalin, whoever the the importance of the strong leader is critically important to Russian history and sort of Russian culture. That, that's one thing. Second thing I think is, it's the power of the narrative. And Mr. Putin has been putting out a narrative, of course, that first of all, this is this is not a war. It's not a war to this day, mm-hmm. even though we've lost 120,000 people, it's not a war. It's a special military technical operation. <clears throat> and were you or I to uh, do an interview, do this interview in, in uh, Moscow and say that Russia is at war right now, uh, we could get up to 15-year sentence in prison. Mm-hmm. So the power of the narrative that, that Russia is under attack, that the West is attacking Russia, they're here to destroy Russia, has been the narrative Mr. Putin has been trying to push. Back in Victory Day in May of this year, when Russia celebrates the anniversary of the end of World War II, uh, Putin was quick to try to, to compare what happened in World War II and the sacrifices of Russians during World War II to the sacrifices that were requ- that are required today. And so... There's in that continual narrative, but that's really what's going on is that Ukraine is controlled by Nazis, even though their president happens to be Jewish. And as a consequence, we're liberating Ukraine from the Nazis, just like your grandfather uh, liberated these areas from the Nazis during the Second World War. And then the third thing, of course, is absolute control and repression. And up to 15,000 Russians have been thrown in prison. And literally, uh, well over a million Russians themselves have fled. You know, there's two, there's two refugee situations going on. One is about 12 million Ukrainians who are refugees or displaced people. But well over a million Russians, by my count, are refugees as well. And who are they? Well, they are by and large, almost without exception, young men. When Putin announced his mobilization of 300,000 soldiers in September of this past year, up to a million young men fled the country. Mm-hmm. And so oddly enough, the refugee flow from Russia has been young men. The refugee flow from Ukraine into Western Europe 
has been almost 90% have been women, children, and elderly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and do you think? I mean, do you think this is going to con- continue? I mean, he's you know he's he's going into prisons to get people. He's he's it sounds it's like he's on his last effort here to try to find people. Is he successful in finding people, or is it just people have to do this? No, I think they they, they have to do this, and yeah. and uh, and the and the and, and the real issue then is at what point does this break? You know, and there are only very isolated signs of some kind of opposition. You you have to paint this picture correctly. There are not dramatic demonstrations going on in Russia. Right. Public opinion of polls, as well as you can believe them, would tell you Mr. Putin is in strong support. One thing he has done, his government has done very successfully, is to sort of satiate the population by the fact that the economy in Russia has not suffered nearly as badly as many of us had hoped or expected uh, by by the sanctions. And the average Russian probably is not feeling it very severely. Some of the more high-quality goods that he or she might have enjoyed might be in shorter supply. But on a day-to-day basis, the average Russian probably not feeling a, a, ter- a terrible change. Estimates are the Russian economy for 2022 was either flatlined or grew maybe at about three-tenths of a percent. Now, as we move into 2023, I think you're going to see that the Russian economy is starting to suffer more and more as those sanctions take a bigger, bigger bite. But at least for the first year of this war, really, the Russian population, again, has not suffered all that much. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, Jeff, we're going to take another short break. And when we come back, um, the two things I kind of want to, in the last segment, is talk about, you know, uh, Russia really has achieved some success, but not a lot. And, and why not? And also, where do we think this is going to go now? In the beginning, you said there was a stalemate. We see a lot of things happen now with more missile carriers in the Black Sea and, and um, you know, this, this, this um, constant offensive. Uh, what's going to happen? And do, uh, none of us have a crystal ball, but what are you thinking could happen as the year goes on? And for our listeners, we are speaking with Dr. Jeffrey McCausland, and he's retired. Colonel from the U.S. Army and former Dean of Academics at the U.S. Army War College. Dr. McClawson is the founder of and CEO of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy. And Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy has worked with thousands of individuals from organizations uh, nationwide and international to develop the next generation of leaders. Their mission is to develop confident and effective leaders. Dr. McClawson is a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point the U.S. Army Airborne and Ranger Schools, the Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, and he holds a Master's and Ph.D. from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Now, if you'd like to learn more about Diamond Six, please go to diamondsixleadership.com, and that is six spelled out, S-I-X, and they're also over so- social media. And on Facebook, they are in Diamond Six Leadership, and that's six as in the number. And on Twitter, D6 Leadership. And on Instagram, D6 Leadership, six with the number. And you can also reach out to Jeffrey on LinkedIn under Jeffrey McCausland. And he's also on Twitter under M-C-C-A-U-S-L-J. So please reach out to Jeffrey. And this podcast is also brought to you by Cinda, and Cinda is one of Europe's nonprofit digital marketing and local search associations. They hold virtual trainings, do conferences, market research, and legislative white papers focused on digital. So to learn more about Cinda, please go to www.cinda.org. And you can also find out about their next conference, which is being held in Berlin, Germany, May 22nd to 24th. And with that, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. A little birdie told me Voice America is on Twitter. Follow us at Voice America TRN. Not enough women are talking about money. Lisa Chastain is aiming to change that. If you are feeling uncertain with your financial decisions, join us on Real Money, Mondays at 10 a.m. on the Voice America Business Channel, where you will learn how to become more capable with your financial choices. 
Listen in and hear stories from other women on how they tackled their financial challenges. You will learn from leading industry experts all the tips, tricks, and advice that you need to establish financial confidence and freedom. Listen in Mondays on Real Money with Lisa Chastain. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one, hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. You are listening to Leadership Beyond Borders. Do you have a question or comment about our show? Please send an email to leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Again, that's leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Now back to this week's program. Welcome back to Leadership Beyond Borders. I'm Kimberly Lewis, your host. Today marks about one year and one month since the war in Ukraine began. And we are talking with Dr. Jeffrey McCausland, and he is the founder and CEO of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy. He is a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, the U.S. Army Airborne and Ranger Schools, and the Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. He also holds a master's and Ph.D. from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. And um, he's an expert in this area, and we've had Dr. McCallson on the show a few times about six months ago. So, uh, Jeff, as I said, we're one year, we're one year and one month into this now, okay? And in the beginning, most all the ex- experts predicted the war would be over quite quickly. And Russia's failure to achieve success quickly kind of is a, was a mystery to us. And as you said in the very first segment, you are seeing their their uh, they're really pushing to try to get success. They're making so many offensives right now, um, you know, in the last six months uh, to try to prove success. So what what's happening in all this? Well, I think what's happening in all this, what we take away from all this is, you know, the Russians have traditionally their military doctrine, culture of organization, et cetera, has been enormously centralized. And with a cult of personnel like Mr. Putin, this has been really a centralized military operation with central control being in Moscow and orders being sent forward. Uh, Very, very little room for initiative, very, very little room for empowerment, uh, very, very little room for uh, to to call back to the boss and say that plan's not working. If the plan's not working that we sent to you, it's just because you're not trying hard enough. So make that attack again and again and again, because eventually it's going to have to work. Uh, and obviously this has resulted in disastrous, uh, huge losses, not in only Russian manpower, but in materiel. It doesn't lend itself to, like I say, encouraging initiatives, which I think is key in organizations. It doesn't encourage any kind of organizational agility, uh, which in a fast-paced situation like the modern battlefield, I think it's key and essential. It doesn't encourage any sense of innovation amongst the the team that you're you're trying to lead. You know, whereas Ukrainians, I think, have been enormously innovative in a whole host of ways. They've had to be. Just think of the plethora of different types of military equipment they've gotten from all around the world. Well, all that equipment's got to be maintained, repaired, different ammunition, different fuel, and so you've got to be innovative in your structures to do that, or your whole system's going to collapse. One story may illustrate that. A group of Ukrainians actually took a, a thing called a DGI z- drone, which you can buy on the internet, by the way. The cheapest one costs a couple hundred bucks. Theirs might have been a little bit more expensive than that. But they bought these very small drones, and then using a 4D or 3D printer, they created a sort of a, a bombing uh, systems that they could mount on these particular drones. And then they just hooked hand grenades to them, flew the drones over, and used those as platforms to drop hand grenades. A very, you might say, crude, but at the same time, very innovative way of, uh, of accomplishing the mission. And, I, don't, and I, I, I just don't think that thinking, which is, I think is pretty pervasive now in the Ukrainian military, is not pervasive at all in, in the Russian military. Mm-hmm. Well, well, it's not allowed to, is, is it? Exactly. Yes, I mean. Okay, yeah. So, and, and, 
Go ahead, go ahead, go on. And the second thing is, you know, there's an old saying by Napoleon Bonaparte that the moral is the physical as three is to one. The moral is the physical as three is to one. If you were to ask the average Ukrainian soldier, if we had one of them on the call right now, what, what are you fighting for? What are you fighting for? He or she, I think, would respond very quickly. I'm, I'm fighting to defend my country, which is being invaded. I'm fighting to defend my way of life, my freedom, my home, my wife, my children. I'm fighting to defend those things. If you ask a young Russian conscript or a, a convict who had been drafted out of a prison on the Russian side, what are you fighting for? He probably wouldn't know. He mm-hmm. probably would say, I'm doing this because if I don't, they'll kill me. Or maybe I'm doing this for pay if I'm a Wagner Group guy. So I think, once again, as you talk about teams and how teams are inspired to reach their potential and sometimes exceed their potential, we have to think about the issues of, of the moral is the physical as three is to one, which Napoleon said two centuries ago. Wow, yeah. And and when you're talking about this and this organizational structure, you're talking about Putin's centralized also. It, it's it, Innovation is one part. But also, isn't adaptability another part, too? Right. I mean, if something goes wrong, then they don't know, you know, they can't adapt. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, because, you know, we used to say during the war in Vietnam, the war was too centralized con- control for Washington. So as one officer said, you know, it was like a 3,000-mile-long screwdriver. Somebody from <laughs> Washington was trying to adjust it by 3,000 miles. Well, that's basically the same thing that's happened <clears throat> in, in the Russian case. And if you go back to the very beginning, it was all illustrated from the start, based in part by those assumptions we talked about, this would be an easy war. The Russians had five avenues of advance into Ukraine. This is ludicrous in military terms, because one thing you have to focus on and organizations have to focus on is keep the first thing the first thing. Keep the first mm-hmm. thing the first thing. Well, the first thing should be going to Kiev, taking down the government. That's your primary axis of advance. But no, we got five primary axes of advance. We got five subordinate commanders. Each one of those avenues think they're the most important. How do you prioritize units? How do you prioritize ammunition? How do you prioritize supply? And it's not until October that Putin actually selects somebody to be overall in command uh, of the operation. Up until then, everything is being directed back from Moscow. And then a few months ago, he suddenly fires. Uh, the guy who he'd put in command in October and replaces him with who? The chief of the general staff, General Gerasimov, now is the commander of all military operations uh, in Ukraine. This would be like sending, you know, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to run the war in Afghanistan. I mean, mm-hmm. this is just unheard of um, as they've tried to to adapt, but do so very slowly. And then on the battlefield, we see them not doing the one thing that's essential on a battlefield, and that is learning. Uh, mm-hmm. Early in the conflict, we saw long columns of Russian tanks, bumper to bumper, heading down the road, only to be destroyed by anti-tank weapons and the like by Ukrainians from ambush. We're still seeing that kind of stuff occurring on the Russian side here a year later, in part because, again, critical thinking initiative is not encouraged. And number two, now the Russians, in an effort to get this over with, are taking large numbers of very poorly trained troops, very poorly inspired troops, and just pushing them to the front to see if mass will make up for what I would say is their military incompetence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so we have that going on now, um, Jeff, and we're kind of we're kind of getting towards the end of. What's going to happen now? I mean, I, I, you, you, in the beginning, you said we're a little bit in a stalemate. We see all this offensive. Um, you know, we, we see, um, you know, uh, Putin coming out and accusing NATO of partaking in the war because of the delivery of weapons without payment. Um, it, you know, what are the potential outcome scenarios for this? <laughs> Yeah, nobody's got a crystal ball, and obviously war is an incredibly difficult thing to predict because at any moment something could happen on the battlefield that would change the direction. <clears throat> but it seems to me there are four, only four possible outcomes. The first outcome would be, frankly, a, a confrontation that ends up between NATO and the West and Russia. And we need to be clear-eyed about that as a possibility. Now, I don't think that's a probability right now, but it's a possibility. And we need to be honest with ourselves that we're in perhaps the greatest nuclear crisis that the United States and the West has been involved in uh, since the Cuban Missile Crisis back in 1962. And as you rightfully mm-hmm. point out there, Kimberly, 
Mr. Putin continues, as do Lavrov, his foreign minister, as does Shoigu, the defense minister, more and more speak, Russia is at war with the West. Russia is at war with the West. Mm -hmm. The West is now out to destroy Russia. Destroy Russia and totally is what the, what the war is all about. Uh, Lavrov, about a week ago, was at a conference in India, the foreign minister. And he got up at a panel and, and opened his remarks by saying, you know, well, as everyone knows, you know, Russia was invaded and attacked. Mm. The whole room broke out in laughter. Okay, but this is the narrative that, that they're pushing uh, to the Russian people. So a confrontation mm. is possible. And in the short term, at least, we've got to confront, I think, two huge problems, potentially. Problem number one is the uh, protection of the nuclear power plants in Ukraine. The, the Zaporizhia has been hanging by a thread here, and that cannot occur indefinitely. So we've got to figure out some way to negotiate through the IEA or some international body to ensure those power plants are protected. We don't have one or multiple Chernobyls breaking out yeah. across Ukraine. The second thing we need to make sure occurs is that the grain deal negotiated between mm -hmm. Russia and Ukraine uh, which allows Ukraine to export grain, that that is renewed. It's right now scheduled to expire sometime around the latter part of March. <clears throat> if, in fact, that's not renewed, then we could, in fact, be facing a large-scale famine in mm. large quarters of the planet, particularly in the aftermath of these terrible earthquakes that have occurred in Turkey and Syria. Mm -hmm. yeah. Second thing that could happen is the war could just grind on, like we see right now, <clears throat> World War One. Success being measured in yards as opposed to miles or whatever. Or one side or the other uh, in that military operation could score success. Ukraine might break through. Russian yeah. army could collapse. I think that's the most likely as opposed to a Russian military success right now on the field. The third possibility would be a negotiated settlement. But in the short term, I don't think that that's going to happen. Uh, a famous book was written one time called All Wars Must End. And in that, the author said, wars end when one of the two sides change their objectives. Well, the Ukrainian mm -hmm. objective is to recover all their territory. They've been adamant, continue to be adamant that is the case. Russians have said, we'd be glad to negotiate, but begin the negotiation. Put, uh, the Ukrainians must accept that these four provinces are now part of Russia. That's a starting point for negotiations. Well, no Ukrainian government is going to do that. So until mm -hmm. either side changes their goals, negotiations don't seem to be forthcoming. And the last possibility, which, which is just would, would be a change in leadership in Moscow. Uh, again, do we see any overt uh, efforts to undermine Mr. Putin? We, we do not. But it seems to me it's going to be very increasingly difficult to negotiate anything with Mr. Putin. In the last few weeks, we've had yeah. both the vice president of the United States at Verkundi and then the president of the United States himself in a speech in Warsaw described Mr. Putin as a war criminal. Well, if you mm -hmm. describe your opponent as a war criminal, how do you negotiate with him? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's that's a really big point, Jeff, also. And, um, you know, there are I mean, I think we all agree there are war crimes going on and this is a disaster. And um and you're right, nobody has a crystal ball, um, but hopefully, uh, you know, there there will be a better outcome than a worse outcome when it comes. So, uh, Jeff, just any, we're down, um, any last, thank you so much, this is great. Um, love to have you come on again in another few months. Um, maybe the, the discussion then will be a little more encouraging, <laughs> you know, because I think we're all kind of feeling, my gosh, this is long. Now, any last message to our listeners? Well, I think the critical message uh, is that uh, this conflict, I think, will set the stage for the globe for 20 or 30 years to come. I think this is really a global inflection point coming out of the pandemic and now this first huge conventional war on the continent of Europe. Uh, if we fail in Ukraine, if we fail to support the Ukraine, we the West, and absent Western support, Ukraine will fail. Then we not only have encouraged Mr. Putin, who describes himself as, Saint, as Peter the Great, to continue expansion in people in Poland, uh, people in Romania, people in Moldova, people in Estonia, people in Latvia, and people in Sweden and elsewhere. Finland, of course, should become increasingly concerned about their security. Mm -hmm. We encourage every dictator around the world. We encourage Mr. Mr. Xi to consider maybe he could, in fact, take over Taiwan or other places around the world because we basically undermine the international norms that have guided this planet since the end of World War II. Yeah. We've also shown that our values, that we talk about freedom, justice, sovereignty, 
um, international law uh, don't have a diminished value, and we now may be moving towards a, a law of the jung jungle. And last but not least, how can we all morally look at this particular conflict and turn our back on the Ukrainian mm -hmm. people when, in fact, we're seeing the Ukrainian the, the Ukrainians stand up to the Russians while at the same time suffering thousands of casualties, civilians, not counting military, trillions of dollars of loss and needless destruction of property, mm -hmm. 12 million Ukrainian refugees, uh, women, children, and elderly, at least 1,000 children killed during the war so far. Some estimates of as many as 16,000 children taken away to Russia, spirited away, mm -hmm. and a significant number of war crimes committed by Russian soldiers on Ukrainian territory. Mm -hmm. How can we as free societies morally turn our back on them? Yeah. Thank you, Jeff. Great final words, um, especially coming, you know, to everybody, um, because I think all of us are watching this and uh, coming here, living in Prague. It's around the corner and having a Ukrainian family. Um, it really gets to your heart. So thank you, Jeff, and really good inf insights today. And for our listeners, we have been talking to Dr. Jeffrey McCausland, a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College. Dr. McCausland is the founder and CEO of Diamond Six Leadership. And if you'd like to reach out to him, you can reach out to him on diamond6leadership.com. He is also on Instagram and Twitter under D6Leadership. And you can reach Jeffrey on LinkedIn under Jeffrey McCausland. So please reach out to him. He also has a book, a co-author of Battle Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for the 21st Century Leaders. And that's available on Amazon. So look that up. So thank you so much for joining us again, Jeff. And um for our listeners, please tune in every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific time. And thank you for listening today and tune in again next week. Thank you for joining us on Leadership Beyond Borders. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific time for another edition featuring your host, Kimberly J. Lewis, on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.